Our next storyteller. Next storyteller. Your next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Hello and welcome to The Narrators. This podcast collects stories from our live events where people share true stories based on a theme. Hi everyone, this is Erin and I am, of course, coming at you from my apartment. Uh, So last month we were supposed to do a narrator show on the theme Don't I Know You and obviously that didn't happen. Uh, So instead, we gave our booked storytellers a chance to record their stories on their own without an audience and send them into us. And a few of the storytellers thankfully took us up on that offer. So this will not be like one of our usual podcast episodes. It has three stories, each recorded at home by the storytellers. Although, as always, we didn't screen coach or edit our storytellers in any way. Now, if we had done the show in April, I would have hosted... And I have to be honest with you, I do not know what my story was going to be because I do not plan them out far in advance, though I am terrible with names and I have embarrassed myself plenty out in the world in that regard. Of course, at this point, I don't really see anyone. So I'm always just like, hey, I do know you. I see you and only you every day. Every day. So let's get to the stories. Your first storyteller is a mom and a writer. Her most recent published pieces related to both of those things can be found at Mom Egg Review. And she also uses doo-wop bibimbop as a space to write about her mixed identity. Please welcome to your ears my personal friend, Megan Sound. My daughter recently turned two. This morning as I was changing her diaper, she asked me, Helen Volvago. I told her, It's still right there, and I pointed to her groin. Her top three interests right now are body parts, books, and feelings. We talk about these things in a regular way. I hear with my ears, I clap my hands. But as a toddler's stream of consciousness goes, I also find myself listening to my daughter say things like, hop on pop, Sam I am, pop weasel butthole. It sort of feels like I'm in a perpetual inside joke. But instead of a joke, it's a puzzle, and figuring out how to respond to the references quickly means evading a frustration tantrum. I nod my head up and down, and sometimes all I can reply with is, Yes, I hear you. The leaps her brain makes in a single minute keep me alert, and in a way are contagious. The other day, she was holding wooden pieces from a puzzle that my mom and stepdad gave her. Kitten in one hand, puppy in the other, she looked at both of them and said, Remember Yaya and Pops? My heart stopped, sank, and wept all at once because I imagined my daughter was reminiscing about the days she used to get to visit my mom and stepdad, her, Yaya, and Pops. Will those memories be the only ones she gets to hold of spending time with them? Or will there come a day when she gets to give them hugs hello again? It felt like those objects she held in her hands transported us just for a moment to our pre-pandemic life. My daughter's favorite room in our house is the living room. It's where most of her stuffed animal toys live and play. It's where she gets to direct them to sit and have tea. Come here, sit on butthole, she'll say. I don't redirect her to say butt instead of butthole. I do wonder if I want to introduce anus to her vocabulary. It amuses me to hear my daughter use anatomy terms, but I'm not sure I want her shouting out, anus hurt, kiss it. 
That may be the pandemic perk I most appreciate right now. Nobody except me was witness when my daughter recently asked me to kiss her butthole. And when she asked me, mommy nipple go and sticks her hand down my shirt, we are in the privacy of our own home. Private parts. My mind leaps and a memory drops into frame. It's 2002 and I've just moved to Denver. I'm a volunteer at a reproductive and sexual health care organization and they've just sent out a request. Apparently, it's difficult to find photos of vaginas online that aren't pornographic. They need a model. I agree to do it. Without even thinking, because apparently that's how my 22-year-old brain operates. Or doesn't. During the photo shoot, I wore a paper gown, spread my legs, and rested my feet on those stirrup things. A woman snapped a couple of close-up pictures, then handed me a Starbucks gift card. She re-emphasized how impossible it was to find non-porn pictures of vaginas online and how the photos she just took of me were going to be so useful for their educational programs. I spend a couple of hours each day reading to my daughter. I recently had to hide the monster at the end of this book starring lovable furry old Grover because she requested it on repeat 12 times in a row. I think her obsession with the book has to do with the fact that Grover shares he's so scared of monsters and pleads for us not to turn the page. She can feel his fear in her own body, so much so that she hides behind a chair when I read her the story. Before I can read the last page, she runs over to me, closes the book so I'm looking at the cover and says, again. I start reading the cover, but the final page that I didn't get to read aloud, Gerber says, oh, I am so embarrassed, is bouncing around in my brain, leaps me back to the learning center where I worked in my late 20s. I'm sitting at my desk in the back of the room while the facilitator from a community partner runs a sexual health program for 16 to 18 year old boys. She tells the boys that she's going to show them pictures of healthy and infected genitals. The focus I have on my paperwork is broken when I hear a collective. I look up to see what the image, the carousel slide projector is casting onto the whiteboard. This is a healthy vagina, I hear the facilitator say, trying to calm the commotion. It takes a moment, but the click really goes click for me. My throat falls into my gut, which proceeds to turn to stone as I stare at my vagina projected on the whiteboard. Everybody is looking at my vagina. The 16-year-old boys, the 17-year-old boys, the 18-year-old boys, the facilitator, I want to crawl under my chair and hide. And all at once, like I'm living in a science fiction story, I'm there in the learning center feeling mortified. I'm in my living room with my daughter who's hiding behind a chair, fear coursing through her body. I'm everywhere we've been together when she asked me, Volvago, as if it may run away, hide in her books so that one day, we may be reading The Big Hungry Bear to find her vulva disguised, hiding out in Mouse's house. 
We'll look at each other as familiarity blows past us, leaving us unsure of anything except that we're each other. Up next, please enjoy Nikki Fleming, who does a great job of introducing herself and her story, so I'm just going to let her take it away. Hi, my name is Nikki, and I'm a human. In quarantine, I've spent my time working remotely, reading in baths, writing plays, taking meandering three-hour-long walks to nowhere, watching the entire series of Harry Potter by force, buying my first house, and eating entirely too much cereal. I'm usually one of the people sitting on the floor at the narrator show, and though I wish I could be telling my story live, I'm excited to be telling it at all, and in a way that doesn't risk all of our lives. So there's this condition people have been talking about a lot lately. They call it face blindness, where people can't remember that they met people before. I am part of the partner dance scene, and there, this is a huge problem, because if you have face blindness, you can't remember if you loved dancing with someone, hated it, or if you should run screaming out of the room when they ask you to dance. And then there's the likely possibility that you offend someone because maybe you dance with them hundreds of times, maybe even to the level of intimacy equivalent to sex on the dance floor, but you still don't remember their face or their name. This could be the end of your dance makeout sessions for all time. A big loss for some people. Anyway, this face blindness has never been my problem. My problem has always been the opposite that I remember every single face I've ever seen in any significant way, and the names attached with them, and usually the place where we met. There are some weird rules to this in my brain, though. One is they have to be relevant to me somehow in a more personal way. So celebrities, political figures, they don't count. I might remember the really famous ones, or the ones that I had crushes on in middle school, like Johnny Depp, Scarlett Johansson, Robin Williams. But in general, my brain couldn't give a fuck about people everyone else seems to know of. The other rule is that I had to have had some kind of memorable experience with the person or someone closely associated with them. That could have been only one mediocre dance, could have been one conversation, could have been a dream about them where they ripped my head off, something. But other than that, my brain is like a freaking card catalog. I can typically tell you who someone is, where I met them, down to the exact room, the general time frame, year and month, and what we were talking about when we met. I can even think of someone's name at any random moment, and magically, my brain provides me an image of their face, in addition to a veritable onslaught of memories about them I can flip through at will. I've only in the last few years discovered there are labels for people like me. Because, you know, why wouldn't there be? There are labels for everything. People who recognize faces more than 80% of the time are called super recognizers. It is thought that super recognizers may have an overly formed fusiform gyrus, the area of our brain specifically developed to recognize faces. And in some studies, super recognizers have actually been shown to be more accurate than computer recognition software at recognizing faces. People who have extremely good memory recall for events of their lives have what is called HSAM, Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory. It's considered a neurological condition. Unlike most people whose recall of events in their lives continues to deteriorate as they age, People with HSAM actually have improved accuracy for details of events in their lives over time. I know, it's hard to believe this is a thing, let alone that I am one of those weirdos. When I realized that most brains appear not to work this way, I really wanted not to believe my brain. I wanted to poke holes in this hypothesis that I was somehow special. So I did an experiment with a group of friends one night. Half of us in the room had been at a weekend trip together multiple years previous to this gathering. Many of us at the time did not know each other before the trip. 
One of the people in the room had not been at the weekend trip, but had heard about it from two of us in the room immediately after the trip. So we all got a piece of paper, went to separate corners, and wrote down as much as we could think of about the weekend from start to finish. But I didn't get a piece of paper. I went to another room and made a stream of consciousness audio file. It ended up being 10 minutes long, no breaks, and I only stopped because it had been a while and I thought I should probably go back to the group. Everyone kind of rolled their eyes at me, but like it or not, mine had 10 to 20 times more detail than anyone else's, and what I recalled was correct. I know this because, one, there was extensive overlap in my details and the combination of everyone else's, and two, as I was reading my recollection, the room exploded in, oh yeah, I forgot about that, in confirmation. Now many of you might think, well, why is this a problem? You might have always wanted a memory like this. I imagine you think this is like a superpower, that the government will seek me out and use me as a spy or a political liaison? Well, if they plan on it, they haven't yet, although make sure to check on me after this airs. I will say, it is helpful in having really accurate arguments with partners about past arguments. Not. <laughs> no, generally, this is more of a curse, or at least a nuisance, than a superpower. Why? Well, because for one, if you don't know already, this isn't normal. And because it isn't normal, people don't usually give you a high five for remembering them. They just think you're a stalker or feel bad that they don't remember you. Let me give you some examples. Example number one. Ages ago, I used to go to these exercise dance classes. And after the Friday night classes, a bunch of people from the class would go out to dinner. And there was a woman there who went every so often with the group, and she was friends with the teacher of the class who I was also friends with. We knew each other very little, but we'd been introduced, and we saw each other basically every Friday and danced in the same room. One day, I was hanging out with a teacher friend, and for some reason, the teacher had been put in charge of watching this woman's baby. Bad idea. We had the baby in a stroller, we were walking through a park, and we met up with a woman at the end of the walk and gave her the baby back. Don't ask me what's happening, it was a weird day. Anyway, all was well, and I saw this woman from class five years later as I was walking out of a restaurant in town and recognized her. She was alone. It wasn't at night in an alley or anything. It was midday in a busy parking lot, and I called out to her and waved and said her name and asked how her baby was. Needless to say, she did not high-five me for remembering her name. No, her eyes got wide. She ran to her car, slammed the door, and drove off. Apparently, she did not remember me. <laughs> Example number two. Day one of undergrad, when all the excited, anxious freshmen were flitting from person to person, introducing themselves... I met this girl named Rose. We met on the steps of one of the old theaters on campus. She told me she wanted to be a dance major. She seemed really sweet. And then by happenstance, we didn't see each other again until the last day of undergrad. So of course, I walked up to her excitedly and I said, oh my gosh, Rose, how have you been the last four years? And did you actually major in dance? Let's just say she also did not high five me, get excited about me, or even ask who I was before she basically just turned and ran away. I learned a little from these and many other similar experiences. Knowing that my superpower made people uncomfortable, though, I just began to have fun with it instead. Facebook helped. Example number three. I had spent a day rock climbing with my partner and our friends and ended up going to a pizza joint in a town we had never been to and didn't live close to. Our waitress was someone I identified as a friend of a friend. I'd never seen her before in person, but I had definitely seen her face on Facebook as a suggested person for my friends list. So when she came back to take our orders, I confirmed she did not have a name tag and then said nonchalantly, Hi, Emily, I'd like a pizza with 
She looked down at her shirt anxiously, thinking I must have seen her name on her name tag, but, you know, she didn't have one. Wait, do I know you, she said? Nope, never met you in my life. Then how do you know my name? From Facebook. You're friends with Ben and Laura, and you dance, and you do acro. Continue to explain to her what I remembered, and she just stood there stunned, like I was a unicorn who had walked out of the forest and begun talking to her. This is the point at which my friends began to call me Nikki Google. I started to get calls that went something like this. Hey, do you remember the person who owned the motorcycle? He was an accountant and bald. He wore glasses. And we met them at that dance in January, the one with the live band. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Al, he worked for State Farm, I think. And he had that mole on his cheek. Yes, that's right. Thank you. What about him? Oh, I just couldn't remember his name. Thank you. Sometimes instead, they would go something like this. Do you remember the person with the dreads who was smoking a bong at Burning Man in 2010? Um, I've never been to Burning Man. Also, doesn't everyone have dreads and smoke bongs at Burning Man? Oh, come on, just help me out. Help you out with what? Remembering who it is. But I wasn't there. I can't query in Nikki Google for an entry that doesn't exist. And so my brain is now a mineable database for others. Not for any really important data, mind you, like years of significant historical events? Nope. Birthdays of people I love? Let's just say my partner of four years was pretty upset to find out I didn't know his birthday month off the top of my head a few weeks ago. But hey, I remember every single experience or deep discussion we've ever had. Doesn't that make up for it? Phone numbers? Does anyone remember those anymore? Credit card numbers? Forget it. Well, I guess I do remember my ex-husband's. So you see, remembering all this stuff is only really helpful in a very, very small subset of instances. No, not in the way you're thinking. My ex already changed his credit card. And in fact, it's really unhelpful in others. Situations that extend past names and faces. Like, for example, it's really not helpful when it comes to remembering every instance of trauma in my life in vivid detail. Like remembering every experience of betrayal, deception, and pain like it was yesterday. Or, well, one more example. Example number four. I was hiking with a friend who was complaining that she has a poor memory. I can tell you the hike itself and the place we talked about this if you'd like to know. I asked her, like what? Well, she said she'd had a playful fight with her partner recently about how long they'd been together. And she had insisted it was five years and her partner had told her it was four. And then she was hurt by him thinking it was four and that a whole year had been ignored. So she said she was sure it was five. So he got up on a rock and apologized, saying, You were right and I was wrong. Oh, captain, my captain. I got quiet and giggled. She said, Oh, no. Please don't tell me you know how long it's been. He was right, love. No. Yeah, you, you and I first met a few months after you two started dating, and that was in June of 2015, so that means it's been four years. Nikki, why? Maybe it's good I don't remember things. See, I was trying to tell him this too, that I'm glad I don't remember our fights, and it's probably why I also can't remember when we got together. You don't remember your fights? No. Don't tell me you remember my fights with my boyfriend. I opened my mouth. And she told me to shut up and keep it to myself, almost forcibly with terror in her eyes. And this, my friends, is why having face blindness or a memory like a fish is actually a blessing. Many days I wish my memory could actually lapse. 
So the next time someone comes up to you and clearly knows you and you don't remember them, let it be a moment of gratitude that the universe did not give you this power or curse, whatever you want to call it. I hope after hearing these stories, you also won't do what so many people have done with me and run away or sit uncomfortably while racking your brain for what the other person's name is and how you know them. Instead, lean in. And if you dare, you might try asking them, how much do you remember about me? And finally, we have a free-spirited Denver local who spends every free second doing yoga or playing in the mountains. She loves houseplants, rock and roll, and keeps her grandma's tradition alive by almost constantly consuming true crime podcasts. Importantly, she recently saw a 40-year-old tortoise chasing a remote-control toy car, and it was one of the best moments in her life. She likes to paint and is a sucker for anything Vonnegut or Hemingway. She just started listening to the 1001 Best Albums of All Time, which seemed like a lofty goal for years now, but she's been chugging right along through it in quarantine. Please enjoy Bethany Roinstead. My grandma died over two years ago on February 16th. We were very similar in personality, but our similarities pushed us apart more than they brought us together. So her death didn't affect me the way you'd think a grandmother's death would. We had been close when I was younger. We used to watch Law and Order and Columbo together and she'd make me promise not to tell my very religious parents. We liked the darker, creepier genres and we bonded over them while eating popcorn. My grandma loved popcorn. I remember she always encouraged me to write and said I had a real talent for it. Once she took a story that I had written and submitted it to a contest being held in her elderly community. I won first place in that contest against dozens of older, more established writers, and I don't think I ever saw her prouder of me than she was that day. I was 13. Life happened, though, and we grew steadily apart soon after. I stopped writing. She was bossy and I was flippant, and we never managed to look down and see that the common ground we were trying to find was the ground we already inhabited. Then one day she died, and that was that, in some sort of sick way. Death is the kind of finality that you can depend on, except when you can't. I recently graduated from a yin yoga teaching course, which, unlike any of my prior teaching courses, featured an anatomy lab that would present cadavers to enhance our knowledge of the body. I was really excited about the lab. I talked to everyone about it for weeks, eager to learn everything I could. When the day approached, I was jittery. Yes, it was going to be interesting. I was also going to be in a room with a dead body, and I didn't know what that would look like for me. I had a lot of emotions. As I was driving to the lab, my dad called out of the blue to tell me that my grandma from two years ago actually donated her body to science, but he couldn't remember where, just that it was in the general vicinity of the town I was headed, my hometown. I had about 13 minutes to process this massive load of information before I got to the lab. Ultimately, I decided that it had been two years and there was no way she was even still around. So while the thought lingered in the back of my mind, I mostly brushed it off. By the time I arrived at the lab, I'd pushed it back so far it was forgotten and I joined my classmates in preparation. Once we were given the rundown, we suited up in our lab gear and entered the room. There were two bodies. One, an enormous male, and the other, a tiny, frail female. Immediately, I started looking at her hands. I knew those hands. 
but it had been two years. But I knew those hands, but it had been two years. We couldn't see the faces of either body, but everything else was mostly exposed. Someone in my class asked how old the woman was, months away from her 72nd birthday, just like my grandma. My heart started to pound. Another student asked what she had died from. Smoker of 50 plus years, died of COPD nearly two years ago exactly. I couldn't breathe very well, but I kept trying to believe it was the surgical mask I was wearing. The lab technician went on to give the female body's medical history. Brain tumor 25 years ago. I was six and I remember that. It was the first time I saw my dad cry. Never regained full motion in her left body, so she walked with a limp. She hated her cane. We had to beg her to use it for her own safety. The limp caused her to overcompensate on the right side, and so she had her hip replaced. I remember buying her a book of jokes for her stay at the hospital. At this point, I wasn't trembling. I was quaking. I kept looking at her hands and then back at mine. The lab technician continued with one last thing. She never ate healthy, and the one thing she wanted people to know was to eat healthier. In her last few years, she lived on popcorn, and her diet made all of her complications worse. I seized the table and gasped, then pointed at the technician and told her to meet me in the hallway immediately. There, I asked if the woman on the table was Sharon Rainstead. The color drained from the technician's face, and she whispered that she should have noticed I had the same unique last name. She hugged and thanked me and sincerely apologized. But because there is no protocol on how to handle this situation, neither of us were very sure what to do after that. We went back into the class and I took a spot right next to my grandma's left hand. The technician continued to lecture, but I tuned all of that out and focused on her hand. How, after two years, it was still here and still noticeably hers. She had the knobbiest knuckles and I have them too. In a way, I was looking at my future hands. Finally, I reached out and slid my gloved hand into hers. We sat there and held hands like we used to when I was younger. I could feel her forgiveness and I could feel her love. I could also hear her smoker's laugh singing in my ears as she patted herself on the back for our morbid reintroduction, one she had designed specifically for me, calling back to the many hours we spent watching creepy TV together. I stopped writing years ago. Everyone is a writer. Everyone has a blog or a podcast and everyone is trying to make it. What story do I have to tell that is any more interesting, relevant, or helpful than what any other writer has to say? In her final act before she departed my life once more, my grandma gave me a story to write, a story to tell, and she made it creepy just how we both like it. Thank you all for listening to this uh, special narrator's podcast episode. And a special thanks, of course, to our three storytellers who presented these stories in a very different way than they were first intended. This month in May, we will actually be attempting a virtual version of the narrators. It will be a shorter version than our live show. The live stream will be on Wednesday, May 20th at 8 p.m. Mountain Time on holdthephone.tv. And the theme will be Gray Area.
The Narrators was created by Andrew Orvidal and is produced by Ron Doyle, Sydney Crane, and me, Aaron Rollman, with help from Karen Wachtel, Scott Carney, and Jesse Witten. We would like to thank our sponsors, Buntport Theatre Company, Illegal Pete's from the Hip Photo, and Great Divide Brewing Company. Our theme music is by Whale Hawk, and we'd also like to thank Bo Beveridge, who provided the outro music you are listening to right now. We look forward to a time when you can join us for live shows once again, which usually take place every third Wednesday of the month at Buntport Theatre in Denver, Colorado. For more information about today's storytellers or the narrators, check the show notes for this episode or visit thenarrators.org. Thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>